welcome to another edition of the Reptile Fight Club. Today, we have some very special guests. Very near and dear to my heart, these two. They're just good guys all around. I think you're going to enjoy their uh, discussion. <laughs> we'll, we'll, uh, we'll hear some... Uh... So the topic today, Chuck is here as well. Hello! Chuck, say <laughs> hi. You're kind of quiet there. I didn't know if you were going to jump in. But uh, so yeah, we're we're excited to have our first guests on Reptile Fight Club, and uh, t- today we're going to be talking about the pros and cons, the goods and bads of zoos working with private hobbyists, and and you know kind of the the two sides of that that argument. Of course, uh, uh, hobbyists always want to get animals from zoos, or want to wonder why zoos don't work with them, or you know that kind of thing. So we're going to hear hear from their expertise. Um, so Steve Sharp, uh, and Ryan DeMoss, um, are our two guests today. And it sounds like we've got a white's tree frog chiming in as well. So we'll hear from him from time to time, possibly. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> um, how about you guys introduce yourself? Uh, Steve, you want to give us a little breakdown of who yeah, is Steve sure. Sharp? <laughs> so I'm Steve Sharp. Some of you might remember me from my glory days in herpeticulture as part of uh, Australian addiction reptiles. Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, been, yeah. Been around herpeticulture for quite a while, um, 20, 27-ish years, somewhere in there, keeping and breeding reptiles uh, as a private hobbyist. And then um, the last seven years, I just hit seven years on June 2nd um, as an AZA zookeeper uh, focused on herpetology and herp collections and worked at a couple different zoos, uh, over the years, um, a little bit of time at Phoenix zoo and then, um, uh, Henry Dorley zoo and aquarium in Omaha for a couple of years. And, and now I'm currently at Fresno's Chaffee zoo in Fresno, California. Very cool. So you say yeah. 27 years of herpeticulture and then the zoo stuff. So how old were you when you started this? Uh, yeah. I, I started like in herpeticulture pretty young. So I started keeping and breeding reptiles when I was 10 um, and started with breeding leopard geckos. And by the time I was 11, I was supplying local pet shops in the area with uh, captive bred leopard geckos and eventually bearded dragons and veiled chameleons and um, diversified, mostly lizard focused projects throughout my time in herpeticulture. And then, um, you know, as an adult, I joined AAR and, uh, Justin and I bred a lot of stuff over the years and then, and, uh, did a lot of shows on the West coast mostly and Western part of the U S and, um, it was amazing. It was a lot of fun. Um, you know, the last, the last like five or so years, I slowly kind of backed away from herpeticulture for a lot of reasons, but, um, a lot of it had to do with just the amount of time that it took outside of work. And, and I got my herp fix at work every day. It almost became like just too much to do double dipping, you know, two full-time jobs, cleaning up caging and (laughs) enclosures and taking care of mouths to feed constantly. And, um, but yeah, that's it. I, I still uh, I still kind of have a little toe in her pediculture and definitely it's near and dear to my heart and um, love to contribute where I can. Awesome. That's, yeah, the, big, that's the big toe, right? It's the big toe. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, eventually it might it might slip back in a little bit more, but right now just 
you know, like, like whole uh, foot, or are you like trying right, to put your leg may, back in? Maybe or? like maybe a leg. I don't know. Maybe That's a good, leg or man. an arm. So we'll see what happens. I look <laughs> forward to seeing your leg back in there. <laughs> He's got nice legs. Yeah, yeah, I do. All right, I got, uh, I got Ryan, super legs. Yeah. <laughs> Ryan Demas, uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. First, what kind of podcast is this? <laughs> it's no holds barred. A little different. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we try to be a little uh, different, a little off. off the Somebody's <laughs> legs are jealous. That is true. Um, no zookeepers' legs are jealous of other zookeepers. They're always jacked. That's true, man. Right on. So yeah, I've. Um, uh, I haven't been in it as long as, uh, at least herpeticulture, as long as Steve. I was actually a zookeeper first um, before really, I mean, I kept the odds and ends throughout the years, but nothing really crazy. Um, but I've been, I think I'm on year 15 in AZA zoos and aquariums, um, okay. National Aquarium, Bronx Zoo, a couple different aquariums, and now I'm at the Cincinnati Zoo. Um, and really, I mean, it took me a little bit, but there's not a job that I would I would rather have it is something i'm really really passionate about you get a chance to inspire people to like give a damn about wildlife or habitats uh, of any kind you get to work someone pays me you know to to work <laughs> with a variety of reptiles um and uh, i haven't uh I, I i can also identify with what steve was saying earlier as my collection has been dwindling um, as the full-time job has more responsibilities and there's children and there's all kinds of things that take up time, but, um, I'll probably always have a leg in it a little more than a toe, at least a leg. Uh, so, yeah. but I, I really do enjoy it. I've been doing it a long time and, uh, yeah, it's something I, I really enjoy. And Steve, you've made it past the years where most people, where it's like that make or break year where it's like, okay, am I going to keep doing this or uh, am I going to go like sell real estate? <laughs> yeah but you made it man yeah i did i did yeah i i'm like you man i can't imagine doing anything else this is the uh, one of the, the best jobs on earth at least for anybody that's obsessed like we are about about reptiles amphibians um conservation and all the things that tie into it within a zoo and you know like today i spent the day talking to people about komodo dragons and their conservation in the wild and how zoos contribute to that. And that, that for me was just amazing to have those kinds of conversations with people. And that was at the grocery store, right? It was, <laughs> it was in the line at the grocery store. <laughs> All right. Well, enough of the niceties. You guys ready to fight? Duke it out, man. All right. Bring it on. So uh, I'll, we'll, we'll get out the coin here. We'll do the coin toss and, Let's see. We'll let Ryan, since he's the senior, he's been in the zoo industry longer. So we'll <laughs> let him make the call here. <laughs> um, so call it in the air. Tails. You got it. It's oh, tails. I knew it. Uh, yeah, you're, you're better than Chuck. I think he's in the <laughs> What the heck? <laughs> wow. Even though we're not fighting, I got to get my digs in. Exactly. Practice no, I'm like Rodney Dangerfield co-host over here. <laughs> Yeah, uh, no respect. All right, Ryan, what uh, what side would you like to uh, argue or defend? You know, both sides are intriguing because there are arguments to be made from both sides. But I'm going to take the easy route on this one because because uh, <laughs> I because I, I agree wholeheartedly uh, that zoos and uh, to to varying extents the private hobby should be working together. 
Okay, so you're going to go pro. Um, Zoo's working with hobbyists. All right. And that means Steve gets the, the con side, the negative side. So as, as you won the coin toss, we'll also give you the option if you want to go first or if you want to defer to Steve to start us out. You know, I'm going to defer to Steve. I okay. like good move, good move. Oh, wow. I always defer. Sorry, I always yeah. defer. <laughs> yeah. It is easy. It is easier to rebuttal sometimes. Hey, hey it's a second. It's sometimes it's a second half game. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> that's, that's, that's true. true. All right, Steve. The floor is yours. Let's hear. All right. Why. So, why, why private hobbyists, or why zoos should not work with private hobbyists? Um, so. Before before I say anything, I just want to say, you know, it's I align similarly with Ryan. I think that goes without saying, but I, I do think that there's a lot of value in in zoos working with private hobbyists. Before I say anything, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, uh, so there are a lot of definite drawbacks in my mind as far as why zoos shouldn't work with private hobbyists, and and a lot of that stems from like a lot of the the legal issues that kind of come from from herpeticulture and from what goes on and how especially herpeticulture has become this global thing that we you know we buy and sell and ship and move animals all over the world all over the globe and there's all of these laws and regulations and countries of origin where these things come from and a lot of the time it's easy to manipulate those rules it's easy to skirt around them um and you know i know in u.s or pediculture too like it's easy to trade animals that are non-cites or that are not regulated by um the endangered species act or or any anything that where they have some level of protection and even sometimes it's easy to get around those things too so um i think some of the legal issues that stem from people illegally going around those loopholes or keeping things that that aren't technically legal that haven't been legally imported um that's that's a huge red flag for zoos especially with um the current culture of you know can't canceling an organization or canceling something that you don't necessarily agree with that you you know public opinion can push and pressure change within an organization we saw that with uh, with Shamu, with with SeaWorld, with uh, with SeaWorld keeping orca whales uh, in a captive setting in human care, and I, I think that public pressure and public sentiment and the black eye that could be inflicted on a zoo or an aquarium for dealing with private herpeticulturalists that are unscrupulous and doing things illegally or in the wrong ways is a huge, huge red flag uh, for most zoos and aquariums, and. Um, you know, it's why sometimes some zoos and aquariums choose not to even deal with private herpeticulturalists or hobbyists in any way. Um, it's just easier to deal with insular organizations that are connected to your organization already or a private nonprofit that's well represented. Um, there's there's ways that you can deal with outside entities um, that don't open you up to as much um potential problems um, or the the potentiality of of having some issues in in their long run. Yeah. Anybody who's read uh, Stolen World or uh, the other Lizard King has probably, you know, (laughs) well, the the kind of shenanigans that went on, how zoos were involved in it. They want to probably avoid that black eye. All right, Ryan. uh, Yeah. What say you, Ryan? Let's hear some more about it. 
Well, uh, I mean, that's, uh, that's always something you have to consider. However, a strong rebuttal is, um, you know, there's quite a few zookeepers and zoos and in the history of zoos. No, I'm not referencing anything necessarily Oklahoma City Zoo um, <laughs> at all. Um, but those apples, the people who take advantage of those things, are isn't just uh, isolated to the private hobby at all. It is it's a it's a part of wildlife movement in general and working with wildlife. Um, so I think that although that's something you have to worry about, I mean it it's all it means is that you have to do your due diligence and and really work with people and do your homework on who you would choose to do business with. Um, so I, I want to clarify when I say I'm pro working with a private hobby, I don't say like, oh, man, we bred like 10 Burmese pythons. Let's just give them to John down the street. I know he has some. It's It's got to be a more delicate process than that. And perception is reality. You are right. So there is a lot of uh, a heat associated with a lot of uh, people in, in the private hobby. However, um, in my experience working in zoos and aquariums, uh, transparency is key to that perception. And if people, if, you do, if you're not trying to hide something and brush it under the rug, you're being honest with people. I think it goes a long way when you say, hey, here's the thing. Um, we bred weight, we have 300 pancake tortoises, uh, in ACA zoos and aquariums and 210, which may not be far from the truth are genetically not very strong representatives. Um, we don't have the room to, to really work with this species to really give the genetically stronger population, um, room. We can't breed them anymore. Well, so what do you do? Do, do you say, well, I'm not going to work with a private hobbyist, so unfortunately, there's just not going to be room for pancake tortoises anymore. Uh, whereas the private hobby is just going to continue to pump out <laughs> pancake tortoises, although maybe not as genetically strong. Um, but I think that doing the background on somebody, making vetting them, if you will, and and making sure that you've done as much homework as you can do, there's always risk involved, it is essential if you're going to work with somebody in the in the private side of the side of the aisle you know you have to be able to do that because really the number one limiting factor in conservation work in zoos and aquariums across the animal board is space and we just don't oh excuse me we just don't have a lot of space and um hoofstock is a really really big uh um example of this you can go to texas and see all kinds of like kudu and you know um all these other like African hoof gazelle, Oscar, like everything just out there. And a lot of those places are working with uh, zoological institutions because what are we doing? Like, unfortunately, and with, with reptiles, especially since I already mentioned turtles and tortoises, like they live a long time. Turtles and tortoises live a long time. It's not like rabbits where, you know, um, oops, we had a genetically not strong uh, population. Well, that's all right. We can care for rabbits for five to eight years or so. And, you know, they'll be all right. But like some of these tortoises, like imagine Asian uh, giant tortoises that are, you know, they're just 60, 70 years old at some point and they take up a lot of space. Uh, so, yeah, I, I can see there's legalities to worry about, uh, but there are legal and ethical ways to do that correctly. And that's what uh, we'll have to do. In zoos. Now, Ryan, on, on that topic, I just had a quick question to, to sorry to break in here, but um, so I, I guess I see, you know, the the demand for these rare or or hard to get species 
that that kind of fuels the illegal trade that Steve was referring to in, in herpetoculture. And so, if there was you know more of an outlet where zoos or you know could could breed these things and kind of maybe flood the market, if 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 that's a <laughs> okay term to use, but um, to to reduce the pressure and and not have people go out and taking them from the wild, but, you know, obtaining them from legally imported, uh, ethically kept animals from, from the zoo industry. I don't know if that's an option or if that's something I, I, I mean, I've heard of some zoos that, that are release some animals to the private sector through various means, but is that something that is possible in your opinion? Well, I think a good point to bring up that you kind of alluded to is that there are lots of zoos already working with private hobbyists um, who have animals, reptiles specifically. Um, And yeah, there is something to be said about, you know, flooding the market, as you might say. Um, But there's a lot. I think it's very species dependent. And that's I mean, that's a tough Mm -hmm. thing about this whole debate right now. I'm sorry, this whole fight is that, you know, there's, I just saw you flex at me, you son of a bitch. You see that? Uh, that was uh, a muscle twitch, man. Yeah, yeah okay. <laughs> um, it's just everything, I mean, it's as simple to say, yes, we should, no, we shouldn't. But it is such a complex issue that isn't yeah. just like, like you really are going to have to go down to a species level in a lot of cases to determine whether or not uh, doing something like that is good. Um you know, just and I'm just referring to uh, surplus animals from zoos, but there's another yeah. point of including private hobbyists, and that's uh, you know private breeders or importers and things like that, and that that enters a whole other realm. I, I think uh, at one point I've talked to you guys before about emerald tree boas, right? Mm-hmm. Emerald tree boas are there's not many people breeding them. I mean, I'm sure we all. I mean, we're kind of more connected than a lot of people, or we're pretty connected in the private hobby, but there's not a lot of people breeding them still. You probably all know a couple, maybe a handful. Sure. There's yeah. probably a lot of overlap between us. In zoos, I can tell you that there was one birth event in the last 12 months, and that was my zoo. Nice. And uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Let me know, Steve. Um, I, we, we have a single female. Oh, okay, we'll talk later. As long as we talk as a zoo, as long as we can talk both as a zoo official and a private audience. <laughs> Yes. Uh, yes. Otherwise, I don't agree with it. Um, well played. Yes. Well played. So, yeah. so one of the things that, that we do in my in my zoo and a lot of zoos probably do something similar is we have to uh, do our due diligence as to best where some of these animals came from. And we were able to we we purchased uh, a pair of emerald tree boas that were imported as adults, and we found where they came from. They came from Suriname, a small village, and I. You're never going to get any importer's information because that's like livelihood. Mm-hmm. But we were able to find out that villagers uh, exchanged these snakes to the importer for rice and clothing. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure they have a lot of avenues of making ends meet and doing things. But in this particular, just going and getting a couple snakes is rice and rice and clothes for the family, for the village. Um, and... We're not doing anything, but by doing that, these people are making money off the land where these animals exist. And as far as we can tell, the population is pretty dang stable. Um, And that's, you know, that's, I'm not saying we shouldn't try to breed emerald tree boas, but I feel pretty ethically sound um, that we do that kind of thing, that all the paperwork's there, you know, CITES, like everything, all the paperwork was legal, legitimate. 
uh, as a population that I feel, it, as far as IUCN is concerned as well, is a, is a stable population. And whenever you have people who are making money off the habitat, off the land, that is good in my opinion because we can breed the crap out of emerald tree boas, but we there's no land or habitat to put them back someday. Then we're not really doing any conservation, maybe preserving a uh, a species. But anyways, the whole point was uh, to really bring up that we we have to work with multiple different facets of the private hobby um, mm. to varying degrees. I mean these these animals weren't like born in our cages in a zoo, so they came from somewhere. All right, Steve, what do you got? Yeah, I mean, um, that, was, that was a good response. Thank you, Ryan. <laughs> um, no, I think um, when, you, when you look at, you know, you vet, you vet people, you vet their backgrounds, um, dealing with zoos, you know, our, the zoo I work for and all the zoos I've worked for, um, we, we dealt with private sector folks and either sourced animals from them or dispositioned animals to them. Um, and it came with a lot of, uh, a lot of paperwork and a lot of, um, checking into certain things, depending on how strict, uh, the zoo is about, about their paperwork process. Um, you know, there's quite a bit of information that's required on the part of, um, of where the animal is going to go to or where the animal is going to come from. Um, and some aspects of that are things like, uh, even in some cases, a site inspection where they might send somebody from an EZA institution that's nearby to that, to that facility or that person's breeding what? where they breed stuff and then actually inspecting it to make sure that there is some sort of standard of care there, that there is some sort of, you know, that there's a, there's a vet, nearby or that they have a regular vet that they actually have their animals screened for diseases that there's all these things that factor into um that are built pre-built into an aza institution uh, an association of zoos and aquariums institution where if you're dealing directly zoo to zoo you don't have to worry about a lot of those those factors that you might have to worry about from from a private hobbyist I see Ryan's face taking a face. That's funny. That, but at the same time, in th in theory, this is how it should be. As far as uh, they're meeting a set standard of care by this greater umbrella organization, and so those things are pre-built into those other facilities. And so you kind of have at least a good idea of what you're getting when you source animals directly from another zoo. Um, and right now there's talk of, of creating a more insular movement within, within AZA, within zoos of breeding more common species where people are talking about like things that we utilize a lot for programs or ambassador animal type species, things like ball pythons and bearded dragons and corn snakes and leopard geckos and all these commonly kept and bred animals in the private hobby. Instead of sourcing them from the private hobby, we want zoos to kind of breed those in in house and share them with other facilities. And then just every few years, somebody, somebody take care of creating a couple of these animals and then sharing them and distributing them around so that we don't have to go out and look for these animals in the private private hobby just to avoid any of those legal issues or disease issues or any of these other things that are not well-regulated or, or taken care of within private herpeticulture. I mean, you talk to any private herpeticulturalist that's Joe Schmo breeding leopard geckos in their basement, 
I guarantee you they're not testing their animals for crypto. They're not sending in fecal samples to anyone. They're not having a vet come and look at sick animals. Uh, You know, you hear the horror stories and you know, like all of us know, having been involved in herpeticulture for a long time, sometimes the solution for a sick animal is you throw it in the freezer and freeze it to death which is not a mindful or good way to deal with a problem at all. But that's a common thing that happens in herpeticulture, like where Mm -hmm. people don't, they don't have a standard of veterinary care. There's no, there's no follow up. There's no procedure. There's no, there's no regulation to it outside of maybe some local uh, county laws or, or something that just says you can't have 10 snakes or you can't have a snake over seven feet or whatever it might be. Those are the regulations that are there. There's no regulations determining a standard of care. Um, I think of a country like Australia where it's actually pretty strict from state to state within Australia as far as like how you get licensed, your caging has to be inspected, someone comes and talks to you, you have to take a class on how to take care of reptiles properly and get signed off by people that are knowledgeable about it. If it's at a zoo or a reptile park or wherever it might be, wherever it's held, you have to actually, there's some standard of care there. I think of like a country like uh, Denmark where they've outlawed rack systems. You can't have a rack system. You can't keep animals in a rack system in a sweater box rack system in some of these countries in Europe because um, it falls out of line with what we think of as current animal welfare practices. What are proper current animal welfare practices and how animals should be kept. And so there isn't any of that in the United States, at I least, at least to my a, knowledge. There's, uh, you, well, my state, uh, Utah, just uh, changed the laws of collection, um, and they allowed um, more collection of, of different species that were formerly prohibited for collection, and they included in that an education system. So you have to watch a video and you have to answer a quiz before you can get a collection permit for wild collection in Utah, which is kind of a cool uh, advance and, and kind of down uh, along the lines of what you're talking about. So, you know, I, I hope uh, that can be used by other states to, you know, to maybe ensure that the animals that are taken from the wild are actually done, you know, that's done by people who, who know what they're doing or who have some knowledge or who have, who have been instructed on the proper care and, and, uh, of, of reptiles. So, yeah. Hey, I, hey you uh, tell Utah to come talk to California, man. That sounds pretty yeah, good. Yeah. Really. yeah. I was, I was very impressed good. because yeah. we've, we've always had some archaic laws in, in Utah as mm-hmm. far as collection and things. So yeah, yeah, it's been, been good. So I, I think, you know, what, what you're saying there, Steve, is that it's, it's a big headache to, to work with private, uh, herpeticulture and when you're talking about private herpeticulture you're talking about importers as well as private breeders um, yeah like like just thinking about you know like you you guys have seen the levels of different collections like you go to somebody's house they that's what you you go in the reptile room and you look at the standard of care you look at the caging you look at the enclosures you look at how animals are kept and over the years you get an eye for knowing when things are okay and when they're not and you know some of that ties into your own morality it ties into your own level within herpeticulture how long you've been doing it um and then also you know kind of your own cleanliness and husbandry type of standards that you build over the years and so what i'm saying is as far as like aza zoos dealing with that kind of mess of 
all of this diversity. I know that plays into what Ryan was saying, that you vet those people properly and you make sure that they're vetted, that they're following these channels, that they're, in, they're site inspected and all these things. Um, but for, for AZA zoos, that just seems like it's a huge task to have to do that for, for sourcing like something as simple as I just want to buy a bearded dragon from X breeder. Mm-hmm. And then also the other thing that, that isn't that we're not talking about is like all the paperwork that's involved in selling an animal to a zoo is mm-hmm. sometimes the, the biggest hurdle for, for any of us within a zoo is to get people to fill that paperwork out and be okay yeah. with like putting things like some of the paperwork I've seen, like ask for your social security number to mm-hmm. ask for your tax ID number. If you own a business, like yeah. it asks for all this invasive stuff that some people are not willing to share. And so that's where within zoos, um, you know, that's another reason to just insularly deal with other zoos. It's just easier to source animals and try to get animals from other zoos, from their breeding programs uh, within zoos, as opposed to just dealing with any kind of the the headache and the mess of whatever herpeticulture is doing. And um, Steve, are are, are are AZA zoos staffed to to really do that? I mean, do they have people who, you know, do like is is that their job, or I mean, or is that something that's um, you know uh, uh, a facility would be stretched in to to try and do that regularly? So it it kind of would be like. If there was a person that I was trying to source an animal from and it was close to a zoo, like if there was somebody near Ryan, I would reach out to Ryan and I would say, hey, I'm trying to buy something from this X person. Can you go do a site inspection? And then I would have a form that that I would email to Ryan. And if Ryan was like, yeah, I have time to do that, I can go do it. As a, It's more of like a favor almost, like just asking for assistance from a fellow peer hey, can we check this person out and vet them and make sure that they're okay? But also that's good for Ryan because if that's a good place and he he goes there and he sees it and he's impressed by that facility, he might want to deal with that person too. And and then that person's local to him that is a new source that he can actually go and he'll have a site inspection on file for himself as well. Now, this rubric isn't kind of consistent or the same. it's not the same for every single facility but it's moving towards that. And I think as AZA becomes more strict with how they regulate and deal with each other um, and deal with the public and deal with other zoos and all these things in the private sector, I think that it's going to be tougher for zoos to actually deal with the private sector. Um, That's just my own opinion and kind of the trend that I see in some ways moving towards where it's more becoming more insular, um, uh, especially like, if I look at things like um, I see things like in New Zealand or I'm friends with some keepers in New Zealand or Australia, and I see things that they talk about where they don't even want to deal with anyone that isn't in a zoo. Um, mm-hmm. They don't want to source animals from the private sector at all because of all the legal issues that are associated with, um, with the, with the private sector and how animals are obtained and how, how they come in come into the hands of private hobbyists they don't even want anything to do with it so they're doing things like um as an example like breeding goliath bird eating spiders you know like which is a very easily obtained spider species that gets imported and um it gets reproduced periodically but not consistently within a zoo setting and so like they'll make like a hundred goliath bird eating spiders and then ship them out to other zoos and share them Mm -hmm. with other zoos and so it's it's becoming this more insular thing. Um, 
over time. And again, this is just my opinion and kind of where I see the trend and what I see kind of happening from my own um, perspective and looking at things and looking at how public opinion really pushes in and like people can come and they, they, it, all it takes is a few negative people like on your Facebook page, raising a large concern about something that maybe isn't a big concern. Um, you know, look at what happened with like polar bears being separated at the Denver zoo that were polar bears that were being separated in order to breed them and actually like put them into a breeding program where they would be bred and people freaked out and it turned into like a national news story and all these problems associated with it from public opinion of people saying these polar bears are sad and they don't want to be separated and they've been together for all these years and and they're missing the point that they were being separated so they could be bred by opposite sexes of the of the of polar bears and so that we could continue to have polar bears uh in in a zoo setting and so like that that to me is something that is a perfect example of how public sentiment and how animal rights and all of these things that play into this um, public pressure that comes on zoos were in my mind, it's just like zoos not working with the private sector is just easier. It's just easier to not deal with any of the headache that comes along with it or any of the potential risks that come along with it. Um, I think of like, you know, I don't want to throw out names or, or things but within her pediculture, I think of a, of a company that was regularly sold to zoos all over the United States. And then all of a sudden, some of the people in the company are, you know, in trouble for smuggling timber rattlesnakes and moving them across state lines and selling them as captive bred in another state. And mm. that's a federally protected species. So it's, a, it's just kind of like one of those one of those things where you know, that was a company that dealt directly with zoos consistently for years and years. And then they were doing shady things and they were on file and they had a vetted process and they had a a site inspection and they had all the things that they needed to have. And yet we're still doing this stuff um, under the table without people knowing. And whether or not any zoos really had black eyes from that is is irrelevant. I think that it made enough national news that 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 could be a problem to the wrong person if they were to catch hold of that story and say, X zoo bought this species from this place as a captive bred. I mean, the zoo was unknowing in what they did, but you know, that still looks bad. It could still be spun the wrong direction. And you know, that Ryan said it himself, you know, like perception is reality. And so that, that perception is enough of a risk at least for me that that that's a pretty heavy right-handed hit there man that's uh, i don't know if uh, we can recover from this one what do you what do you got ryan you got a, a counter for that oh there's so many points he just made in that 13 minute <laughs> diatribe that i gotta remember them all <laughs> um number one I guess I should have said this in the beginning, but anything I say here are my own views and not the views of the Cincinnati Zoo. Yeah. Yes. Um, yes. Just, Ditto for Steve. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, a couple of points. One, um, yeah, there is some perception. Animal rights is something you have to kind of look out for, but at the same token, um, the animal rights, which is different than the animal welfare movement, but the animal rights movement uh, is something that uh, I personally am not going to let dictate how we conserve animals, how we work with animals. 
my own morality and ethics is going to dictate how that happens. And, you know, as far as working with uh, people who may get busted after even filling out all the paperwork, you know, sometimes I know it sounds terrible, but sometimes that happens and you learn from it. Um, mistakes happen. I mean, we work with wildlife to begin with and wildlife is some of the most unpredictable things that can happen. Every day can be the same for two months and then all hell breaks loose for a week or two and you don't even know what's going on or something like someone didn't fill a foot bath and now there's a pathogen that made its way in somewhere. Um, so I'm just, what I'm saying is there's, so, when you're working with animals, there's risk involved everywhere. And I think that that isn't just with the animals and their health, but that goes through, throughout the place. And yeah, I think Steve made some good points earlier about, um, you know, usually when you are working with other zoos, not all the time, but usually when you're working with other zoos, there's a robust medical history that you can kind of use and see. And honestly, that's like a trend that I'm seeing in zoos is uh, quarantine is, I don't know about you, Steve, but we are starting to take risk assessments on everything that comes in. And if there's a healthy medical history on an animal, it may not even go through quarantine. Uh, yeah. Sometimes there's no real reason. But in the case of working with someone where that history may not be there, because maybe the animal's a wild caught animal that was imported, uh, there is no medical history. In that case, it goes into uh, a lengthier, more um, more invasive quarantine project to make sure that that's, uh, that that's healthy. Um, as far as, and I'm trying to remember, like filling out paperwork, you know, that's an easy one. If someone wants to fill out paperwork and work with us and make things happen, then that's good. If they don't, well, sorry, we're just not going to do business. That's an easy one. Just, just walk on. If you go to someone's place and you don't feel like there, it's a moral place to be or an ethical place to be, don't support that crap. Like, uh, I wouldn't do it with my own dollar in my, at home. Um, you know, so those kind of points, although, um, they're good points. I mean, those things there, it is a, an important part of a decision tree of working with certain individuals. Um, it really just having standing your ground on what is acceptable and what is not is something you just have to do. And that may come off as elitist in some areas, but for the most part, man, it's, it's the way you got to be. Like you said, perception is reality, but I mean, I'm not going to do that paperwork to go uh, buy a bearded dragon. I don't know where you're going. I'm, what zoo needs to buy a bearded dragon? Um, I ain't breeding ball pythons on purpose unless it's for King Cobra food. Um, but that, that's another, I mean, the, you know, there's uh, rescues out there to get those types of animals for ambassador. And you did bring up a good point with, uh, we could use our, we use our ambassador programs a lot, especially with reptiles. They, I mean, do you have an ambassador program, Steve? Yeah, yeah. I, I don't mean, oversee They it, got pancakes. Um... They got pancake tortoises, I bet. They do um, have pancakes. Not to keep hitting on the pancake tortoises, but they got pancake tortoises. <laughs> we, we we have about a half dozen pancake tortoises that they're they're just not good exhibit animals, man. They're not they're not the best. They're they're you know, okay. we have they're... one on exhibit with an Angolan python. Oh yeah. That's and cool. it, do, geographically do it, it hurts my head. It hurts my head because uh, yeah. they're like East Coast, West Coast. <laughs> but, you know, they're making it work. And, yeah, they are. It's in a six-foot by two-foot by two-foot uh, habitat. And it, you yeah. can always at least see a part of them. Sometimes yeah. it's just best to not ask questions. Hey, yeah. yeah, well, just, and just, just Zoom, hope that it keeps Zoom, working. 
zoogeographically accurate exhibits are it's, what it's we strive for. Hey, they're both in Africa. <laughs> yeah. Okay, that's, that's just true. Africa, right? Africa. They are both from not a very Africa. big place. Yeah, <laughs> it, no, it they're in southern Africa. But yeah, are there, are there things that uh, private keepers can do to kind of be more in line with what a zoo is looking for as far as getting animals from that keeper? Is there, is there a way that keepers can kind of increase their uh, keeping or, or what, what would we do to, to help zoos find us interesting? I mean, Steve mentioned some stuff earlier and it's, you know, um, don't be afraid to make changes to your husbandry. Animal welfare is a huge thing. If you do want to work with uh, a zoo and aquarium, they come to do site inspection and they see permanent housing in rack systems and whatnot, you may, you may not make it far. Um, importers and things like that, they may use those systems as temporary holding, and you have to take that into consideration. There are vetting processes already there. I think one of the best examples of like <clears throat> more of a private hobby who works incredibly well with both the private or uh, an organization works both well with zoos and the private hobby is the Turtle Survival Alliance. They're a 501c3 and yeah. Um, they are. They went through the process. They're not AZA accredited, but they are AZA certified. I think is is the term they use. Um, and they work extremely well with zoological institutions and the private hobby, and really have kind of set a benchmark. Um, so not everyone's going to. Not every private hobby is going to be able to participate. But I think having those things, and you know, really just going like, do you have a vet? Like that, the one like that's one easy question that yeah. I think every home hobbyist or, or breeder should should have. They should at least know their name, you know. Yeah. Like, oh yeah, that's Doctor Dahlhausen. That's my guy. I, I go see him if I have a oh, sick yeah. animal or something I'm worried about. <clears throat> but um, it's not for everybody. But I mean, the process I think is just getting to be known. Now there is a list through the tags, Steve, of, of places yeah. that have had on-site inspections and that yep. we do share so that, yep. you know, so it's not, like you said, it's not one institution yeah. just doing that. There's multiple institutions. So if, oh, yeah. if uh, another zoo wanted me to check out a place that was in Cincinnati, you know, I would, and they said, can you, would you mind doing an on-site inspection? They know you're kind of, sure, I'll go out and look and I'll give them my honest. And, and if it's good, boom, uh, they fill out the paperwork. They have their, their ducks in a row, you know, then they're on the list. And that's not a list like you're on and you're there forever. I mean, you get, you get rechecked on those. I'm every, I think three years for us, for any vendors that make it through the process, um, they have to go through it again uh, because a lot can change. You guys ever go, I mean, obviously somebody who fails, do do they ever come back and reinspect or once you're, once you're uh, blacklisted, that's it. I, I, I would really say see. probably, yeah, it depends on what the situation, right? Yeah, like, I again, mean, <laughs> you're going to get that blanket or that answer from probably both Steve and I and different things a lot because everything is so specific to the scenario. Yeah. You know, what did they get blacklisted for? Did their yeah. did their permit expire by one day? How um, bad the zoo needs the animal? No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Just saying. Yeah. I, that might be a bigger issue with the megafauna. Um, you know yeah. they, they probably won't even know yeah um but yeah i mean is it something where they like somebody got busted on breaking some major laws with some species that are heavily protected and then yeah 
that that company or person yeah. or vendor was going to be blacklisted and rightfully so um, mm-hmm. for a lot of the reasons Steve mentioned. But that doesn't mean you should stop working with private hobbyists. There's bad apples everywhere, man. Um, mm-hmm. And like I said, you're just trying to minimize risk. But, you know, if we kept just breeding everything ourselves and passing along with zoos, we probably would have a very difficult time maintaining genetic diversity. We have a lot of species survival plans, which are uh, for particular species. And, and the biggest... Th- The number one goal is to have enough animals with genetic diversity that you can maintain 90% genetic diversity over 100 years. And at some point, that's just not going to happen if we don't have blood from somewhere else. We don't have that kind of thing going on. And um, What do do you consider, I guess, uh, an acceptable level of genetic diversity? I I would imagine that would differ with different uh, species or, I mean... You've got some some lizards like the Igernia, you know, that that kind of maintain a family <laughs> group, and and the babies yeah. stick around for a while. And there is some mixing with other populations, but it's largely, you know, a little bit of an inbreeding situation there. So I, I'm curious, like, what what kind of level of genetic diversity would a zoo be looking at? Do, is We're there always, any kind of standard? Always looking to maintain at least ninety percent genetic diversity over a one hundred year period, however many generations that is. That's not necessarily for all animals. That is for these particular animals that are identified as a, as a species survival plan. Uh, okay. Pancake, yeah. pancake tortoises. By, yeah. yeah. So how many, uh, how many individuals does that include then with, say, pancake oh, tortoises yeah. as, as an example? Totally depends, and there are several different levels. Um, okay. Like for one, we uh, like Pascagoula map turtles. I'm a program manager for that particular mm-hmm. species, at least for now until everything shuffles. Right, Steve? Yeah. Um, yep. But I needed to have at least 20 individuals. That was the benchmark for this particular species. Okay. That over 100 years, that amount of genetic diversity within that group would uh, statistically be able to maintain a minimum of 90% diversity over 100 years. Um, and okay. that can change. And now if I had, and that, that would make it maybe like a, a red level SSP. If I had 50 individuals, that might make it a yellow. And then if you have 100, like pancakes, green. There's plenty yeah. of them, things like yeah. that. Um, but that's and I, and I would, I would imagine that would in like those those uh, twenty five to one hundred animals would all be uh, from different clutches or different you know parents. As, or, I mean, as best as, we as know. much as you can. Yeah, yeah. And the okay. thing is, if it's an animal that we don't that you don't know, it goes in mm-hmm. as unknown. You don't take a risk. You just say unknown, and it's basically a lot of those animals get identified as do not breeds or um, yeah. Oh, They're just never going to be okay. selected for that kind of stuff. But gotcha. Yeah. Uh, without working with private individuals, it's going to be difficult to maintain a lot of that genetic diversity. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of these programs, and this may be a product of the system, but a lot of these programs can fade if you don't bring in new genetic stock. Um, and really, so if we can't work with a private individual to kind of bring in some of this new genetic stock, it may compromise the conservation of a species in zoological institutions because we can't do that. And that's bogus in my mind for a number of reasons, but in this particular fight, it is um, (laughs) like we have to work with the private individuals to be able to do that. Okay. That was a solid uppercut, man. (laughs) Steve's reeling a little bit, I think. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Let's, let's have a little uh, rebuttal there from you, Steve. What do you got? Uh, you know, like I, I think um, 
you guys know that this is a really difficult point for me to defend, but as far as uh, as far as uh, Ryan's concerned, like he's done an amazing job of explaining like the intricacies of all of this. Like, and again, you know, I think we're getting close to our uh, to our time limit. I, I just wanted to say, like, with with zoos working with private the private sector, um, one the one example Ryan brought up of um, of TSA. Um, that's a really good example of, of what's possible and that turtle and tortoise folks within the private herpeticulture, they kind of do it, I think, the right way. They're a good model for working with AZA institutions because they have these animals that are so long-lived, they have to work with AZA institutions and with each other to map all of this out and trade and make sure that their genetic diversity is intact. and. I, I just, I always looked up to the turtle and tortoise guys. I, I was never a turtle or tortoise person. I never really like gravitated towards that at all. But um, I always thought that they managed their animal populations really, really well. Um, and because of that, because of the way that they manage their animals and track things and, and are thorough, they are a lot easier to work with uh, when it comes to uh, a zoo or an aquarium because a lot of the time they have their paperwork in order. They're already dealing with things that are CITES Appendix 1 that are they have a CBW permit for. Um, I'm thinking of things like radiated tortoises and galops and, um, you know, things that, that fall within that rubric that zoos are interested in having or are a part of um, having in their collections. And, um I think of, you know, people breeding radiated tortoises to help fund conservation measures in in Madagascar, selling offspring to protect the wild population that's left. That's like the point, right? Like that's what we should be doing as like private herpeticulturalists. We should be moving towards that road. That's a good model. Um, That's, in my opinion, the the mindful approach to keeping and breeding reptiles, there should be a purpose behind it outside of, I want this animal, I want to have it in my collection or whatever it is, there should be some sort of a purpose. Um, and I'm kind of like diverging off. I'm not really rebuttaling Ryan's <laughs> response anymore at this point, but like- Rebut! I just wanted Come to on. say that, that, that he's absolutely right, that like working- <laughs> You know, TSA is is an organization that that does it the right way and is a good model for people to kind of copy. Like, you have to be keep meticulous records. Uh, take your animals to the vet. Take your animals to the vet. Get a hurt vet. Take your animals to the vet. Document it when things go wrong. Document it when things go right. Documentation. There's so much what I call low hanging fruit. There's all of this scientific knowledge that we are literally just like flushing down the toilet, like mm-hmm. all the time, yeah. just because we don't take the time to sit down and write a natural history note or write a breeding note or whatever it might be. If it gets published in her review and no one reads it, who cares? It's there for future people to go back and look at and say, okay, this happened. This weird thing happened in this collection somewhere. Um, so as a private hobbyist, you do have a lot of power. You do have a lot of, you can drive and push the herpeticulture culture into the way that it should go. You know, at least 
you can influence change within your within your levels and within your communities that you are a part of. Um, and that, part that of might, that, that might be a, a way to kind of get in the door and work with a zoo is uh, if you can um, work with a, you know to publish an article. Is, I mean, are there mm-hmm. people at the zoos that would want to publish with a private keeper and help them get their article into her purview? Is that a possibility? Because that would be fantastic, right? I mean, people can get published. They're gonna, most, a lot of people want to. They don't get yeah. 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 But another way you, you touched on something that made me think like uh, we give a lot of uh, money to U.S. Arc for the work that they do. And uh, mm-hmm. this isn't to say we should take money away from them. That's not what I'm saying. Uh, <laughs> but what I what I am saying is a, a really good way to help out if, if you're interested in working with zoos at some point is to you can reach out to me if you want. Um, and I can kind of help direct you. But donate mm-hmm. to a tax on advisory group. Mm-hmm. Um, that money goes a yep. long freaking way. I don't know if you yeah. actually need to tag with, uh, what was it, Brad in Oklahoma, who's got this amazing conservation set up with um, Alvarezi, the beaded lizards. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. insane. I would love to, I'm going to throw in five bucks just so I can say I donated to it. But yeah. um, but those tax on advisory groups, it, it, it go, that money goes a long way to, to not just in situ or uh, ex situ conservation, but a lot of it goes to field work. A lot yep. of it goes to supporting the people and the things out there. And um, when you start making donations there, it goes a long way because those, those are not well-funded. Yeah. It's very um, hard to get funded to study reptiles yeah. in the natural environment. Yeah. And so that's an easy way. Just to, along those lines, like that, basically all of the stuff that we know about wild Komodo growth pattern and na- mm-hmm. a lot of natural history stuff that came from AZA zoos funding that research over successive years. Mm-hmm. And that money came from people throwing money into that, that program and directing money from ticket sales or whatever it might be towards that program. Mm-hmm. And all of that is funded by the majority of it is funded by zoos. And so like, that's something else that is a huge, huge thing that when you come to a zoo, to an AZA zoo, you are helping to fund conservation work in the world. Whether you know it or not, when you buy a ticket, most zoos, a portion of your ticket goes directly towards conservation funding, um, whatever it might be. It might be a grants program. It might be direct funding that goes from the zoo's main conservation budget into all, whatever various programs that zoo has committed to fund. Mm-hmm. Um, it might not get directed exactly where you want it to go. It might not be reptile related or whatever, <laughs> but at the same time, when you come to the zoo, that's what you're doing. Um, and that's what the zoo's missions are now. Um, for a long time, I think that people think of zoos in this old, old style of thought where it's just this menagerie of animals for you to come in and look at. And it is in some ways that, but it's so much more than that now. Um, and in order for zoos to stay relevant and current, they've diversified and been pushing into conservation for, for years and years and years that we've helped to push and fund all of this conservation research and all of this natural history research. And I mean, that all of that information is important. Um, yeah. It's important to us mainly because as humans, it helps us understand our world and helps us understand where we fit into the world and, that is like the whole point of being alive in some ways. I think that how we fit into things and what your nature is as a human being is, is 
the reason that we're here, you know, like yeah. figuring out why you're alive and, and what your life is and what your life has meaning for. And um, I think that in some ways that, you know, that's how we do it. We just go out and we look at things and figure out how it fits together and then how we, how we fit into that rubric and how we fit into that. Yeah. So Ryan, what, what, if we could get some, uh, you know, links up on the reptile fight club page to some of these potential places that would be good to donate to. I mean, we don't want our money going to like some, some, uh, you know, uh, PETA organization or something that's going to just fund, uh, you know, legislation against our keeping, but yeah, like if, if you could get some legitimate stuff where we could uh, I mean, donate, contact to me. contact yeah. me because really what will happen is if you do want to, if you're interested in donating to something like that, Mm -hmm. What you're going to have to do is I'm going to I'll have to provide an email address basically to the treasurer of said advisory group, whether that's the amphibian advisory or not. And I'm just not going to do that without talking to somebody sure. and saying, hey, I've got somebody who's interested. What do you think? And so that's how that moves, yeah. which makes it harder to donate. Sure. Yeah. Um, but I was I was kind of laughing while Steve was talking there because we went from a fight to like kind of holding hands. and uh, Steve. What are you well, doing I, to our fight here? I'm a pacifist, you guys. <laughs> there's, the, there's no hand holding in guy? fight club. <laughs> um, Conscientious objector. A very good thought to have. And I think this is what zoos make you have. Because in herpeticulture, whether you want to admit it or not, uh, a large part of you is always like, it'd be nice to breed 20 instead of 10 of these because I'll get a little more money that way. And yeah. Whether you're like well, that way, I can give a better enclosure. It doesn't matter what it's for, but that that is in your mind. One of the things that I love about working in a zoo is that you are providing care and you are doing something with for nothing in return. And that is mm -hmm. so rare in the herpeticulture. Still, is to not expect something back. To do something Word. because you love it, because it's yeah. awesome, and because it makes you feel good inside. That's what you're getting back. And that that animal's not giving you anything back, though. Yeah. You know, no. so keep that in mind, uh, people. That's a little nugget. Yeah. I think that will guide you towards becoming a better keeper, quite honestly. Yeah. And we've encouraged that here to keep a species that's not going to benefit you monetarily, but that you that needs somebody to work with it. You know, whether it be a commonly imported species that people consider like a garbage species, you could be a, an ambassador for that species, you know, you'd say, Hey, anoles are, are cool. They're, they're not just some feeder lizard, you know, they're, they're, they've got these cool behaviors and, you know, get excited about them. And that will in turn get other people excited about them. And people will stop looking at them as, you know, garbage animals or, or throwaway or, you know, pe temporary pets and look at them for what they truly are. You yeah. Know, they're throwaway animals important. until they're not. Yeah. Yeah. And when they're not, they're just not there anymore. Exactly. That, that's what's yeah. going to happen. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, but we won't be able to save them without working with private hobbyists. Mm -hmm. that, right. That's true, right? <laughs> you, you are the winner. <laughs> One you last week. Yeah. I did tap out. All right. Well, guys, I think this has been an informative uh, discussion and, and, you know, you guys both bring up some good points on both sides and, you know, hopefully uh, we'll take that to heart as, as private hobbyists. And, and, uh, you know, I really, really appreciate you guys coming on. Yeah. Thanks for your input. And, and if uh, somebody wanted to get in touch with you, Ryan or Steve, how might they do that? If you're, if you're comfortable with people getting in touch with you. Yeah. Number, uh, getting in touch, uh, find me on Facebook, Ryan Dumas I'm right there. Um, 
use my personal email for now, rad.reptiles82 at gmail.com. Uh, once I know you're not a psycho, I'll be happy to give you my phone number. We can talk or text or whatever. But, um, but you haven't given yeah. me your phone number. Does that mean I'm a psycho? <laughs> I'm still vetting you through the process. Steve, okay, can you perfect. do a site inspection for me? <laughs> I, I, ha I have. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I'd be happy to talk to anybody about zoological stuff and potentially working with zoos at some point. It's it's not, it's not going to be for everybody, um, but it is an important yeah. aspect of conservation, um, yeah. or at least preservation, if nothing else. Where, where, yeah, do, your interests li where do your interests lie in, in herpetoculture? Like what kind of species uh, are you I'm excited you what, about or involved in? Yeah, I've gone through the gamut in my years. You know, There were <laughs> yeah. times where I felt like I was an amphibian specialist, but when it's all said and done, it's ended up coming full circle, and it's turtles and tortoises. Cool. I get so much yeah. feedback from those guys. My collection is dwindling in the snake realm and and more towards the turtles and the kids love it and mm -hmm. and that's where like i work a lot with the canixus homiana and that's cool. a, that's a garbage tortoise right uh yeah. it was 75 bucks for a yeah. tortoise that was going to live two months from the reptile show and yeah. you know they're vulnerable and they're declining rapidly they're only mm -hmm. going to be vulnerable for a little longer and that's a species i'm working with a couple people jeremy thompson the, and check out the canixus working group a private hobby cool. Or a, a private that may um, may see rise soon, but nice. I mean we're interested in breeding and just exchanging animals and without money changing hands necessarily, um, nice. just for the strength of the. I mean that's the kind of stuff that I get into now. Um, yeah. I say yeah. that, but I'll also post some snakes for sale at some point. But <laughs> yeah, but yeah. no, but that project means a lot to me. That yeah. particular thing, so. That's kind of what we were talking about earlier, having those projects that are important, that are mean something and that are helping those animals. Because, you know, you, like you said, they just get, you know, they don't live long once they're imported. They're, they come in, you know, in rough shape. Uh, so hopefully you guys are making some inroads into figuring out how to keep these things happy because it seems like that's been a difficult thing for people to figure out. Yeah, we don't know crap, man. For as yeah. much as we, we know relative, <laughs> relative, we know some things, but really we don't know anything. Yeah. I mean, how many species of snakes and lizards and frogs and, and shit are they? And we keep, like, a lot of people, if you look at your setup, and especially in a rack system, you're like, well, I have carpet pythons and ball pythons and angolan pythons. And you're like, well, shit's all set the same, man. Like, uh, they, <laughs> they, they, it might work, but it's not, yeah. they're not, we're not getting yeah. that interaction. We're not learning yeah. a whole lot from that situation. And that's not me bashing racks. They have their place. Um, mm. I choose to limit my, my use with racks. But, yeah. Yeah. Um, Anyways, yeah, sorry, diatribe there again. Sorry. <laughs> no. How about you, Steve? What kind of stuff are you interested? What what uh, species and how can people get in contact with you? Um, yeah, so same with Ryan. Like, you can find me on Facebook. I'm not super duper active on Facebook these days. I try to limit my social media use a little bit here and there, just because it's better for my own personal <laughs> mental mental state. But, I think um, we'd all benefit from that. <laughs> yeah, but you can message me on there. I might just take a little bit to hear back. Um, also, sure. I, I post on Instagram periodically. Um, so just on Facebook, it's just Steve Sharp. And um, there's probably other Steve Sharps that have reptile stuff on there. But, but you know, <laughs> what's, like what's I, your Instagram handle? My Instagram handle is mindfulherp, at mindfulherp. So you can find me on there. I just have... Um, you know, if you like pictures of lizards and stuff, you know, that's mostly what I post on Instagram these days. But, um, yeah, I mean, as far as my own personal interests, I, I think I will always 
you know, my first love is Australian lizards, and I think it will always be that until until I'm old and dead. But uh, oh, yeah. I, oh, yeah. I think uh, Australasian lizards is a big focus for me. North American desert adapted lizards, Xeric species, is a big a big focus for me right now. Um, I've just enjoyed uh, mostly he- lizard heavy throughout the years, but um, lots of geckos, monitors. Um, I loved working with various Adatria species and, you know, all the little dwarf monitors and, um, oh, yeah. you know, all this stuff that kind of I gravitated towards without knowing as a kid how expensive and rare <laughs> stuff, some of this stuff was. And I was just like, I just like it. I don't know why, you know, yeah. kind of a thing. And um, I think that uh, for me, though, just moving forward, I think if I do keep anything in the future at home, it will be in a, a large naturalistic enclosure that will just be a, a couple, you know, a pair of something or, or uh, in a, the, the goal would be to make a, like a biotope, you know, like species specific plants that are from the region and um, in an animal, uh, you know, all regionally represented in, in a little slice of whatever it is that I create. Um, yeah. That's kind of what I'm moving towards with with work as well and, and trying to push our exhibits into that realm of, of a biotope uh, instead of a, you know, like a zoogeographically uh, monstrosity of, uh, you know. Like and golems and pancakes. <laughs> yeah. Well, I wasn't going to say that, but <laughs> I, I also have exhibits no like that too. It's, it's, <laughs> it, it works for the general public. They, you know, they don't have to necessarily know the region of that things come from, you know, I've got plants from all over the world. Pothos is everywhere. I'm sure. Pothos is in <laughs> the everywhere. Chinese evergreen. Like, yep. Just don't put oh, yeah. cheatgrass in your exhibits. I hate yep. that. <laughs> Bike, bikish ginseng. We have a lot of bikish ginseng in our exhibits at, uh, yeah. at Fresno. <laughs> cool. Well, thank you guys once again. Yeah. And, uh, we're uh, hopefully we've we've all considered some some new things through through this discussion, this fight, this hand holding, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> <laughs> all right, thanks, guys. Thank you. Well, thanks. I've I'm I'm heading out for a reptile uh, herping trip tomorrow morning at four a.m. So I'm gonna get out of here and get some sleep, <laughs> get back. Have fun. Stuff, but yeah, should be it should be a good time. I'm going out with the. The uh, Morelia Pythons radio guys and the Herpeticulture Network guys. So hopefully we can get them to fight a little bit on the on the trip and record it for another episode or something. But, yeah. Nice. On on that note, man. Uh, let's let's just uh, run it down real quick for everybody. Uh, you know, check out uh, the NPR Radio Network. Uh, Eric and Owen on NPR. Um, there, Eric and Owen are also doing Herp History. So that's a history of herpetoculture. They've had some fantastic guests on for that. And uh, if you want to get your uh, carpet cliff notes on, you know, compare notes and figure out what's what in in the carpet world, check check that out. That's Eric and Owen as well. And then uh, Riley Jemison and and Owen are doing Colubrid Corner. So if you're into Colubrids, check that out. Um, Also, the student of serpent, that's Eric and Rob. So that's kind of a, a, a deep dive on species. Oh, they did a cool, they did a cool interview this uh, last week with a guy from uh, on West Texas herping. So that was very uh, timely for our trip nice. out to West so, Texas. Are you going uh, out with him? Or oh yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know if he's meeting us out there, but he gave some really nice advice on where to be and where Sweet. to go. Sweet. Sweet. Cool. All right. Also, check out Carpet Cliff Notes. That's uh, Eric and Lucas Lee. So they're uh, 
they're they're talking you know oh i already i already i plugged that one already uh my bad well you get it twice so uh the field herping podcast uh i don't know if anybody has listened to that um but that's eric and nipper reed um human uh, humans of herpetoculture i know justin is uh was on an episode of uh, Humans of Herpet Culture with Lucas Lee, so that was a that's a that's another good one for people to check out. And uh, if you're into monitors like myself and and Steve, uh, check out Alan Stevens and Kai Fan. They they kind of go into different monitors and feeding and all kinds of interesting topics around monitors. Um, and then the Australian Herpetoculture podcast with uh, Luke Nedham and, and Jason Rogers. That's uh, I've been enjoying that man. I I, I love the oh, Aussie. Yeah. I love the Aussie perspective. Uh, it's a, it's yeah. great. And then, um, you know, uh, stay with us, man. Uh, Reptile Fight Club, Justin and I, uh, we'll be, we'll be back for another episode. Um, thanks everybody. And, uh, have a good one. Yeah, thanks. We'll catch you next week. For another See you guys.